Well, hi, everybody. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Wow, I'll just go home. Uh, brutal. Hi, everybody. We're going to dig into God's Word. We are in John chapter 17 today. John chapter 17. So if you got your Bible, go ahead and open it up. If you're in your app, it's the fourth book in the New Testament. If you're using a house Bible, page 903, John chapter 17. And uh, if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand, and uh, one of our ushers will be able to drop one of those off to you. But while you're finding that, John chapter 17, I'm going to pray for us. Father, we're about to dig into your word. And so, Lord, we know that that means we're coming in contact with the living God, and so we do this with a holy reverence. We never open your word lightly. We always know that anytime we open your word, it has the power to truly transform us, to, to kind of go right down into our heart, divide bone and marrow, soul and spirit, and actually sow your truth into us. And that's what we want to have happen, but we know that's painful. And so, God, would you change us? We invite you to transform us today, that we leave here more like Christ than when we came in. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. I was uh, reading a book recently by one of my favorite pastors and speakers. His name is Francis Chan. Some of you may have heard of him before. He wrote, he's written a number of kind of well-selling books on Christ, Christian topics. But in this newest book of his, he writes all about the church. And he asks a lot of hard questions about the church and, and what we're doing as the church. And he had this one section that really struck me. He was recording that he likes to go around and ask pastors that he comes in contact with a series of questions. And the first question he'll ask pastors is this. He'll say, uh, what do you believe your congregants, so that's the church that you lead, what do you believe your congregants want and expect out of your church? So he's asking a pastor what he thinks the congregants of his church want and expect out of the church. And he summarizes the answers that he normally gets this way. He says, quote, a really good service, strong age-specific ministries, a certain style, volume, length of singing, a well-communicated sermon, parking, and most importantly, good coffee. It's, it's kind of hard to read that. And then he'll ask those same leaders uh, a very similar question, but he'll say, okay, what do you think, what do you think uh, Jesus' commands regarding the church and how it should be are? So what do you think Jesus said about the church? And the pastors will say, well, Let's see, love one another as I've loved you, John 15. Uh, look after widows and orphans as I've commanded you, that's James chapter 1. Um, go, make disciples of all nations, that's Matthew 28. And then I'll ask the real poignant question. He'll say, what would upset your people more? If the church didn't provide the things from the first list, or if the church didn't obey the commands in the second list? I want us to wrestle with that today. You know, we, we live in the 21st century, and the, the way church is done today, it, 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 by God's grace, it maintains the pillars of what the early church had. God's word as truth, the Holy Spirit filling the church, bringing a community together. The pillars of the church are still true, and yet the dynamics of the church, how it actually operates and functions, is very different here in this place as it would be if you were to go overseas to many other countries. It looks different Unfortunately, in our 21st century Western American mindset, one of the things that slipped into the church that we participate in, many of the churches that we know and assume as normal, is the, the heart of consumerism into the church. 
consumerism is how we treat every other aspect of our life. Every group we're a part of, every, every store we shop at, every place we have a membership at. It's all about a consumerist mindset. I pay my dues, I do what I have to do, and I get something out of it. And I expect it to be pretty, I expect it to be clean, I expect it to have its things in order. And oftentimes, unfortunately, what we can do is unwillingly, without thinking about it, we can begin to... Allow some of that consumeristic mindset to slip into the church. I can't tell you how many people I talk to that honestly either start coming to our church or start going to a different church from our church uh, for a number of reasons. And oftentimes the, the, it sounds like this. You know, they, they had a, a better children's ministry. I, I happen to prefer this preacher over that preacher. I didn't particularly like the style of music they had over here. And what is that? Now, I understand preferences. I, I do. I get it. I understand heart language. I get that. I get how that can be important for the way we worship. But I wonder how much consumerism we brought into the church and the expectations we put on the church that we're a part of to, to do things the way we like it. And if it gets a little too far from how we're comfortable with, well, there's plenty of other churches we can go to. How far have we strayed from Jesus' commands for the local church? You know, I have dreams. I have dreams of where our church can go. I look at a room like this. I look at what happened in our 9 a.m. service, and I just see the power of the Holy Spirit at work. I know a lot of your stories. I know what God's doing. It's phenomenal. And I've got this vision as the pastor. I long to see just this incredible movement, and I can see it. I can, I can see 10 years down the road this thing growing and what God can do with it. And I constantly have to go back to the Word of God and say, whoa, 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 wraith vision what was Jesus' vision for the church? What, what, what did he say about it? Because wraith vision, that, that can very easily get off track from what Jesus talked about for the vision. My name's Rafe, by the way, if I haven't met you. You're, you're wondering who Rafe is, that's me. It's not a verb. Today my assignment's pretty simple. Across Park, it's the first year, first Sunday of the new year. And every one of our locations has been assigned to preach vision. What's the vision for our church? Where are we going? What are we doing? What are we trying to accomplish here as a community? And you know, I, I came out of the corporate world. Before I was a pastor, I was a, a project manager, department manager over at a website development firm. And, and I've read a lot of books on vision casting and, and how a good leader should have a huge vision for everyone to jump on board with. And I have to be honest with you, my temptation all week is to set a vision so big and grand for you that all of you are going to want to jump on board and run behind me and follow after me. That's what my natural reaction is. Then I look down at the words of scripture and I see Jesus' commands for the church and I say, wait, Jesus, you had a clear vision. How dare I create a vision outside of what you said? What I want to do today is look at some of Jesus' vision for the church. We're not going to get to all of it. Jesus had a lot to say about the church. The church was his bride. He said that he would die for his church. I mean, we talk about precious things. The local church is, is what was most precious to Jesus Christ. That's why if ever you meet someone who says, you know, I love Christianity, but I just don't want to be a part of a church, you say, well, you don't love Jesus' bride? It's hard to love Jesus and not love his wife, right? Like, you got you to gotta be part of a local church if you're going to love Jesus. And today I want to ask, what is the vision Jesus had for this place? Because we can very easily drift away from it. And we're going to be in John chapter 17. John chapter 17 is what's known as the high priestly prayer. I encourage you, we're not going to read this entire chapter today. We're going to take just a section of it. If you get a chance, maybe halftime of the Bears game today, turn the volume down. Read all of John chapter 17. It's this beautiful prayer that Jesus prayed for you. 
is Jesus pouring his heart out for his church, for everyone who would put their faith in Jesus Christ, and him saying, God, this is my desire for them. Read it, meditate on it. It is a treasure that will feed your soul. I want to pull out three desires Jesus had for his church from this text today. The first one is this. Jesus desired that his church would have a radical otherworldliness to it. Hear that again. Jesus desired that his church would have a radical otherworldliness to it. Now before I even read this text, let me make sure I under, you understand what I'm talking about when I talk about the church. When I say church, I'm not talking about an institution or an organization or anything larger than you. You are the church. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, when we talk about the church, we're not talking about a mission that the pastors of a church and the leaders put together. We're talking about each and every person who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ and said, I'm in, I'm following him. You're the church. The church is not a building. The church is not something we do on Sunday morning. The church is a community of individual followers of Christ who come together to proclaim Jesus together. And so when I talk about the church, I'm speaking about you and your hearts and me and my heart. Jesus had a vision for us that would be radically otherworldly. John chapter 17, starting in verse 13. He says, but now I am coming to you. <laughs> Just pause there. Jesus acknowledges he's about to be betrayed and crucified. These are, in a sense, he, his, his last and final prayers for his people. Think of the power of that. Think of your moment if you knew you were about to go and the prayers you would pray over those you loved in those last moments. That's John 17. But now I'm, a, I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now, three times in there, one of them a little bit of a backwards way, but two times at least very clearly, one time is a little backwards, he says that we are otherworldly, that we are not of this world. Verse 14, he says it. Then in verse 16 again, he says, they are not of this world. He draws a very clear distinction about the life and the overall sense of the life of a person who said, I'm following Jesus Christ. I'm a Christ one, a Christian. That's what that means. I'm a Christ one. I choose to follow Jesus. And someone who has not yet made that decision in their life. He says these two lives are utterly different from each other. There's a profound marked difference. These people are clearly and should be otherworldly. So much so that he even says, he uses this word hate. I know we hate reading that word in the Bible, don't we? But he actually says that the people who have not yet trusted in Christ will in some regard hate the differences they see about those who have followed Christ. See, something overall takes place in the heart of a follower of Christ that is markedly different and is hooked onto Jesus Christ in such a way that everyone else is able to notice it and clearly see the differences. Now I want to pause before I go any further. And I want to ask you a very important question. Is your faith visible to anybody outside of you in a tangible way? Is your faith changing you? Is it having an effect on you? Is the reality of Jesus and his love being regularly poured into your life having such an effect on you that other people who have not yet trusted in Christ are seeing those differences in your life? Is it noticeable in any way? 
Is it impacting your relationships? Is it impacting how you go about your job, how you interact with your clients and your customers? Is it interacting how you engage with your money? Is something about you changing in a noticeable way? There was a great man who lived a few centuries after Christ. His name was Augustine. With our American accents, we call him Augustine these days. But the rest of the world often calls him Augustine. Augustine was one of those great thinkers and philosophers and had a lot to do with shaping a lot of Christian thought. Uh, Still, a lot of the thought that he originated with, literally a thousand years after his life, some of the great philosophers went back and started claiming his thoughts as their own. He was way ahead of his time. But what he was doing was he was looking at Christianity and the Word of God and trying to put some legs and foundation to it about 300 years after Christ lived. And Augustine wrote this amazing book that he's well known for called City of God. And in City of God, it's this, in a sense an allegory. It's a, it's a bit of a, a tale, if you will. Might not be the right word. But he's exploring this idea of those who are otherworldly and those who are thisworldly. And he says essentially every single person of his, is a citizen of one of two cities. You're either a citizen of the heavenly city or you're a city, uh, the city of God or you're a citizen of the earthly city. And that there is this difference, a marked difference between the two people. Let me read from Augustine. He says, we see then that the two cities were created by two kinds of love. Gotta love Augustine. The earthly city was created by self-love, reaching the point of contempt for God. The heavenly city, by the love of God, carried as far as contempt of self. In fact, the earthly city glories in itself. The heavenly city glories in the Lord. The former looks for glory from men. The latter finds its highest glories in the Lord. The former looks for glory from men. The latter finds its highest glory in God, the witness of a good conscience. The one city loves its own strength, shown in its powerful leaders. The other says to God, I will love you, my Lord, and my strength. I love how Augustine starts that. He says the two cities are separated from each other by two different kinds of love. And one of them, the earthly city, is marked by a self-love. Adam Smith, the philosopher who wrote a book known as Wealth of of Nations, wrote another book on morality. And he has this important quote. He says, man naturally desires not only to be loved, but to be lovely. Let that sink in for a second. Man naturally desires not only to be loved, but to be lovely, or to be that thing which is the natural and proper object of love. Story of the Bible I have found to be true. I have found that it is a true statement that people inside of them have a hole in their heart that longs to be satisfied, that longs to be affirmed and filled by all-consuming love. There's something inside the human experience that says, I long to know, am I lovable? Can I be lovable? Can I be fully known for who I am and yet fully loved? I see this in my children all the time. Regularly, I'll be in the room with my children, and my my kids will do something. They'll color something, something they're proud of, and then they'll look up at me. And they want my attention. They want the affirmation from Dad to know, I see you. I'm proud of you good job, way to go. And if I'm distracted, if I'm busy, if I'm reading a book or I'm texting on my phone, they'll sit there, dad, 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 dad. They'll wait till they get my attention. Why? Because something in their little hearts longs to receive affirmation that says, I love you, I see you, and I love you. We bring that with us into our adult lives. That's what Augustine's writing about. 
He says each and every person has this desire inside of them to know, can someone affirm me? And the two different lives, the earthly city and the otherworldly city that we're called to be a part of, is marked by how we experience and satisfy that, that desire for love. On the one hand, we can go about through a self-love. We can look to the things of this world to say, you know what, I know I have a desire to be loved. I'm going to find it through the things of this life. And so we go on the hunt to find love. We look to romantic relationships. We look to promotions. We look to money. We look to experience. Somehow these things have to satisfy us. And yet every time we find ourselves in a new romance, what, what happens? It's not, it's not, there's more. I, I haven't got, I need another romance to get me there. Every time we get another promotion, we say, this promotion will satisfy me. If I can just get this title and get here, that will, be, that will give me the affirmation I need. And then what happens? You get, you get the promotion. You're sitting there in the corner office over everybody. You're saying, man, it would be great to run my own company. <laughs> man, then, then, I, then I'd be happy. You get one promotion, you're still not satisfied. You get, and you end a lifetime, a, literally a lifetime, chasing after this affirmation that all along God says, I'm the only one who can provide it to you. So quit chasing it over here because it's just wasting your time and hurting everybody around you. Look at what Jesus says in verse 13. Let me read this to you again. This is the first verse we read. He says, but now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Get that. Think of the joy that you imagine Jesus had as the son of the heavenly father. Think of the confidence he had. You know how my little girls want that confidence when they look up at daddy and they want to say, hey, hey, look at me, look at me, look at me. Think of Jesus knowing perfectly well who he was in the eyes of the Father. Before he had ever done anything in terms of ministry that we're aware of, the heavenly Father looked down at him and said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That was his baptism. He hadn't even done any ministry yet that we know of. He was just loved, and Jesus knew it. Jesus says, that joy I want you and me to have in full to be fulfilled, not lacking anything. That's the Greek word play, Roma. It means overflowing. It's so full of confidence and assurance of who you are in the Lord that you're fully satisfied and can then pour out into others. See, this can only come through a relationship with the Lord. See, it's only Jesus Christ on a cross that can actually satisfy the void that lives inside each of our hearts. We can chase it in a thousand other places, but until we accept and bow our knee before the cross and say, that's where love was given to me. One man taking my place where I belonged, a substitute for me because of my rebellion to God. I'm sinful. I love myself. That's the pursuit of self-love is that I'm selfish. But God's called me to something more. That results in rebellion to God and separation from him. But Jesus shed his blood for me. And he did two things for us. Not only did the shedding of his blood forgive us for our sins, right? Scripture says there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. Jesus offers the final sacrifice, so there's nothing else we have to do. It's all done by Jesus. But then he goes further. Then he pours the love of the Father that he has onto us. Everything that is Christ's, when you place your faith in Christ, becomes yours to share with him. His inheritance in heaven gets poured out to you. His, his identity as a son, as a son, right? We get adopted into that identity that we become sons, not in the same way Christ was, but part of the family and get to experience all that was Christ's. It's the only one we ex ex accept Christ and find ourselves radically identified with him. 
Can we then stop chasing something else that can never satisfy, but live in the fullness of the presence of what we're called to be in right now? See, that's what Jesus says. He says, I don't ask that you take them out of this world. Did you catch that? See, Jesus had the power. He was God in the flesh. What he could have done is the moment we believe in Christ, he could have zapped up, up, uh, us up into heaven. Done. Just shoop, zap up to heaven because we're citizens up there. That defines our ethic. That defines our, mor our morality. That defines everything about how we go about our life. That's our citizenship. But he says, no, I want you to live that out down here just as I lived it out down here. There's a wonderful book written by Brennan Manning called Abba's Child. And he says this, it's, it's full of a hundred quotes I could have pulled from that book, but he says this, define yourself radically as one beloved by God. This is the true self. Every other identity is an illusion. I want to ask you, as we start the year 2019, I don't know where each of you are in your own journey. Many of you I know, and, and some of you I don't know. I don't know what God's been doing to get you into this room this morning. Maybe it's the new year. Maybe you were getting ready for the new year and you said, you know what, I want to start getting my spirituality in order. I want you to know today, if you want to get your spirituality in order, the first thing you need to do is look at the cross and look at the belovedness that you have if you've placed your faith in Jesus. Until you rest in that and allow him to transform your identity, to be someone who is markedly different by the citizenship of heaven that you have, there's not much else we can talk about you got to get that in order first. And then once we have that, we're beginning to understand the vision for the church. We sit and we rest in our otherworldliness that Christ has called us to so much more. And love flows through us. Number two, number two. This is the vision Christ had for the church. First is that we'd be otherworldly. Second, Jesus had a vision that the church would have a radical unity about it. A radical unity Man, does the modern church get this wrong. Verse 20, let's pick this up. Many of the Jews read this in, um, where am I? I am John, chapter 19, chapter 17. John chapter 17, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Hear the, the language around unity. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may be perfectly one. How many times has he said it now? Quite a bunch. That they may be perfectly one. Don't miss that adjective. Perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Now if ever the, the stakes were raised, Jesus just raised it for us. Jesus has his desire that we would be one, that we would experience unity. And he ends it with this, so that they might know, so that the world might believe. Did you know one of the greatest witnesses, one of the greatest evangelistic tools the church has at its disposal is its unity. It's unity. The way that we are unified as one body, big church as well as church here, little church, this smaller community here, will actually define and speak loudly to the world that's looking in about what we believe. In other words, if there is disunity in God's house, there will be great confusion from the watching world. Now, isn't it interesting that Jesus describes the unity his church is supposed to have by comparing it to the Trinity. He says, just as we are one, you in me, let them be one. 
the unity the church is supposed to have is supposed to, in some ways, model the unity of the Trinity. Now, the Trinity, let me try, try, try to bring a little clarity to this, but, but this is important. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. They're different in function, yet all equally God and only one God. Now, I don't know how that works perfectly, but I know this. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. Yet all three of them are fully God, and it is only one God. That's the Trinity. Somehow, through their differences, there is a perfect harmony that exists between them, that they are all in perfect unison with each other and always accomplishing the will of each other. Now, that's important for us because one of the things that means is when we talk about unity, we're not talking about conformity. Now, let's, let's, before I get to that point, let, let's talk about what unity means in the church. Unity means a number of things. We're going to put this into practice. If we're going to have a vision for the church that's really tangible and means something and not just words, unity means that across denominational lines, we're going to have a unity about us. I don't know about you, but when I talk to my friends who are atheists or agnostics, one of the biggest challenges they throw up to me is, well, there's so many denominations and it seems like they're always arguing with each other. If you haven't heard that from someone, you need to be around more atheists and agnostics because that's one of the lead voices they often complain about the church is that we can't agree. We have to learn how to labor together across denominational lines. This, this is one of the marks of the 21st century church is that there is a great chasm between denominations that oftentimes share all the core doctrines the same and differ on subtle doctrines where we're subtly different from each other and rather than laboring together in love, we cause rifts of division. And the world sees it, they're catching it, and we're in disobedience to the, what the Jesus told us. We ought to have a unity with one another in terms of how we love each other, how we care for one each other. In this room, we ought to be family with each other. But there's another part of unity that I must speak into, and we speak about it often in the church, in this particular church. The, the church ought to be united around multi-ethnicity. It's been said, and it's said because it's true, that oftentimes Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the week. That was a quote that came out of the 80s, but it's still true. The church, historically, has become very segregated. And much of that has very wicked, evil roots, largely over white churches that created systems where they didn't allow anyone else to come into the church. And what happened is that most races went their own way and created their own churches because they weren't allowed in other churches and now in the modern church we look at the words of scripture and we recognize sin in the past and we say wow there is a unity that Jesus has called us to how do we love each other in such a way that we bring about the fullness of Jesus's vision for the church now what we just say unity does not mean conformity it doesn't mean that everyone has to come in here and do church a certain way. See, if we're truly going to be united, what that means is that we have to learn to explore and express the various culture backgrounds that are in this room today. The various cultural backgrounds that are in our city. And we've got to celebrate them. One of the mistakes churches have made in the past is they said, you know, we want to be multi-ethnic. But what they really meant is we wanted to be multicolored because we wanted different people in the room. And so they got a whole bunch of people in the room, but then the culture and the entire way they went about church was pretty much white evangelical way of doing church, right? They did all the same things that historically the white evangelical church did, and then they celebrated their multi-ethnicity by saying, well, we have a lot of different colored people in the room. Jesus has called us to something far greater than that. 
true multi-ethnicity, true unity across the fullness of God's people looks like each person saying there is an expression of the gospel that someone from a different cultural background, from a different race, from a different age, from a different, you name the difference, is able to shed on me that I can experience the gospel in a fuller way because of your experience of the gospel. Therefore, I need you in this room. I need the different voices and the different races in this room. Otherwise, I'm missing an expression of the gospel. We need that to impact all aspects of our ministry. It's got to impact how we preach. That's why there's two different preachers that regularly preach from this pulpit. And if you notice, we come from a different racial background. That's important because the two of us, me and Kenson, bring different expressions of the gospel, different cultural backgrounds and reading the gospel so that you're getting different views different thoughts and backgrounds into your understanding of the Word of God. You've been around this church for a while. You know what we do here on a Sunday, how we do music. This thing has changed over the last few years. But we've got a long ways to go. There was a great book that was read a number of years ago, and I read it last year. It's the story of a young African-American man who uh, took a job working for a large uh, Christian evangelical book publishing company. Uh, largely run by white evangelicalism. Uh, and he had all the hopes in the world, this young African-American man going, he's, man, I can't wait to experience this unity. They've told me they want to experience the unity. I can't wait to experience it. He writes his journey in this book. He says this. He says, I got a rude awakening once I began to ascend the professional ranks at white evangelical institutions. After a period of racial hibernation, that's phenomenal language, I w awoke to the reality of my otherness, I realized once and for all that as an African-American evangelical, I'm a black Christian in a white Christian world. The facts smacked me upside the head in a variety of ways. The acceptable worship songs at church, the photos used to illustrate magazine articles and ministry ads, the feeling of always having to re-educate my white friends and colleagues. Now what he says, I have heard from many who are not only African-American, but come from many different minority backgrounds that are present in this community here at Park Community Church South Loop. He is not the only voice that says that. This is not easy. The, 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 the vision of implementing Jesus' words, if it was easy, everyone would have just done it. This is hard work. And those of you who have been in this journey with us for a while know some of the hurdles that we've been on over the last year and a half of we've sought to implement these words from Jesus. We don't want to be a multi-ethnic church because it's a trendy thing to do. We want to be a multi-ethnic church because Jesus said you should be united. And in this city... That means bringing the races together, because we got a pretty ugly history in this city of this. we got street lines that prove that. The, the city hasn't figured it out, but the church can figure it out, because we have the power of Jesus, and we have his words that tell us how it ought to be done. Here in this room, what we desire to do is that each person would at some point in the life of the church, on a Sunday morning, throughout our experience, that we would be putting down our rights of how we think church ought to be done in order to allow someone else's thoughts of how church should be done to be celebrated because each person's cultural experience matters deeply. We have come so far, yet I realize we are still infants. We have a long ways to go. But I want to invite you on this journey. I do. Those aren't just words. These, th this is what it looks like to be the church. A few years ago, I was at a conference. The conference, frankly, was all about this topic, about the multi-ethnic church. And there was a wonderful African-American preacher who was speaking to largely a room of non-African-American pastors. And he was talking about all these, uh, these, this conversation. And we were throwing questions to him. And it was just a great, wonderful time of learning. And at some point, he said something that has always stuck with me. He said this. He said, my question for you, 
and I felt like he was looking me in my eyes. He said, my question for you is not, can I come to church with you on Sunday and be your brother? My question is, can I marry your daughter and be your son-in-law? And something in that moment, it, I felt like God just put a key inside a door that was like just locked from my understanding. I had been a missionary overseas. I, I had lived in a culture where I was the minority. I, 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 from a book standpoint, I got this thing. I know the verses. But something in that moment just unlocked something that said, wait, family, wait. Now that, that's right. That's biblical. I can get that. When I adopted my daughters, two beautiful young African-American girls, everything about my life changed. Suddenly, the news I watched, it wasn't, it wasn't the news. It was my daughters that I was looking at saying, I need to raise you in a way that is different than how I was going to raise my five-year-old daughter. I, I, there, there's other pieces in this that I, I, I wasn't even thinking about before. Family changes things. I'm inviting you into that with us. Not everyone is called to adopt. Not everyone will marry across different lines, racial lines. But when you come into a church, you're a family. You're family. That's the biblical language. You come into this place. You love one another in such a way that you say, you're my brother. You're my sister. I have so much to learn from you. I want to know your story. I want to know where you came from. I want to know what God's done in your life. I want to know what your values are. I want to sit around your dinner table. And if we can't start taking those steps, we got so much to learn on unity. It starts around the dinner table. This is like step 15. The dinner table is step one. We got to learn how to be family with one another. Are you ready to be family? You know, something about this, I, I feel like whenever I preach on this topic, I get the sense, just looking in your eyes, I get the sense that something of you says, man, that sounds like what I was made for. Because guess what? If you're a follower of Christ, one day you're going to be on the throne of heaven. And you know what that throne is going to look like? The nations are going to be gathered there. The cultures are going to be gathered there. Unless you start figuring it out now, when you get to heaven, you're going to have a whole lot of culture shock. When you get up there, you start looking around and go, man, my experience down here on earth was very, you know, monocultural. Something about this strikes deep for us. And it's because it was Jesus' vision for the church. The church should have a radical unity about it. Third, Jesus prayed that his church would live on radical mission. We're talking about Jesus' vision for the church. What are we about? What are we doing? Let's, let, let's not get ahead of ourselves. What did Jesus say? Verse 18, he says this, As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them. Whoa. Let's just pause there for a second. As the Father sent the Son, so is Jesus sending you. Get that. Jesus was a missionary. He came from his dwelling place, entered here to ransom for, his, for himself a people. He came on mission to love people, and in the same way that he was sent, you are sent. There's no such thing as a follower of Christ who is not called to live on mission. Not a thing. It's not a thing. If your experience so far in Christianity is just you come to church on Sunday and you go about the rules and try to be a good person, you've missed the whole thing. It, nothing like that is what Christianity is about. Nothing. That wasn't Jesus' vision. It's not why he died for you on the cross. He died to ransom you and then to send you. That's why he left you here. Remember? He said, I could have sucked you up to heaven right now, but I'm leaving you here to be a witness. Every one of us is sent. Verse 20, he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you, through your word. Your life speaks the gospel. 
how you live speaks the gospel. Our words speak the gospel. How do we do this at Park? I'm going to keep this section a little short because we talk about mission often at Park. And you know a lot of the ways that we're on mission here and we're calling you to be on mission at the church. But I want to share with you a few things. One of the things we do is we recognize that we are just one organization. We're one church. And there's a lot of amazing partnerships and, and groups out there that are doing amazing work. There's wonderful groups that we want to partner with and say, how can we send our people to go be a part of what they're doing over there? Because that's good. And they've got wisdom and direction and tools at their disposal that we just don't have. And so we want to send our people. There's a great group called Together Chicago. Next week, they'll be coming around our church, and they'll be sharing with you how you can get involved. We're partnering with a church in, in Bron- or we're partnering with a public school in Bronzeville that has a number of students that would be at-risk youth to offer after-school tutoring. They've come to churches to say, will you help us? Will you come into the schools for us and just love on our families, love on our students? And I'm, I'm praying for 12 people to sign up to be a part of that program. That'll start next week. Up north at Park, this is really wonderful work, I love this, there's an elderly senior center in Rogers Park that have come to Park Community Church and asked if they would host a church service on Sundays inside the retirement center. Here's a picture of it that will come up behind me. There you can see Jason Malone, our Rogers Park uh, pastor, meeting in the elderly center. And and they're going to do church there. Why? Because Jesus said, love the widows. Isn't that what he said? That was his commands? Isn't that what James said in James chapter 1? That this is what the church should be about. And so the church is stepping in. And I want you to know, I think it would be wonderful if every once in a while you guys went up there on a Sunday evening and and loved on a retirement center and took care of our widows and blessed them well. This is what Park is about. Another thing we want to do well is plant churches. We've got a vision to see churches planted all over the city. Let me put a map up behind you. This is a map of Chicago. The blue dots on there show you everywhere where Park Community Church currently is. The white dots, so we have nine locations, The white dots are all churches that we have helped plant in some way or other. Whether we funded them and financed some of their work or we provided coaching and and training and mentorship along the way, we have a desire to see churches spread across the city because we know there are other expressions of the gospel beyond park that are important for various neighborhoods to come and experience the gospel. I want to show you a video right now. It's about five minutes long. It comes from a number of our partners that we've helped plant over the last few years, just sharing some words of what God's been doing through their ministry.